0: foster Foster care nation Listen listen up hey guys this week we have a guest on with us carrie bach who happens to be a therapist at the well counseling service in i believe southeastern tennessee if memory serves correct uh there'll be a link down in the show notes you can find her information there she also has a podcast hope for anxiety and ocd and, um, she's a, a foster and adoptive bio mom. I, I, I forget all the details of, of how many different ways she's involved with foster kids, but she's got a lot of great experience. I think you guys are going to love to hear this. So, you know, sit back and get ready to take in a great story on top of that. I just wanted to mention to you guys, if you have the moment and you feel led, do me a favor, run over to either buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare or patreon.com slash nation. And drop us a couple of bucks to help us pay for this project right here. We provide this every week free. We don't charge for it. But if you have the opportunity, if you're looking for a way to help to be part of the solution, that would be so super helpful for us. So if you have a minute, take a, a jump over there and look at uh, supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care or patreon.com slash foster care nation. And if not, share this episode with a friend or with a colleague or, any episode really we just want to get the conversation going and see how many more of the amazing listeners we have out there who we can convince to take that next step towards figuring out how they can support kids from hard places thanks and enjoy the show you can forget a lot of things foster care nation but never forget this you're listening to unparalleled studios No. Foster, foster care nation, nation. Listen, up. listen up this is
1: foster care and i'm parent
0: strength for the powerless courage for the fearful hope and healing for wounded hearts Hello and welcome back to foster care and unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda and today we have for you a fellow podcaster and a therapist we have Carrie Bach with us and Carrie has the hope for anxiety and OCD podcast Carrie how are you doing today
2: good how are you
0: I am doing wonderful okay I always love to talk to other podcasters so let me nerd out for thirty seconds here. Uh, <laughs> oh, we were no. talking about all the, you know, the work of editing and everything, and I am jealous because you have found a way to outsource your work, and I have not yet because this this whole process takes me a lot of extra time every friggin' month, and I'm not making any money to really put towards that. So I'm a little bit jealous that you're already there, and I'm not. But at the same time, you're, you're talking about people who, on your podcast who who are looking for some hope and for, for the, their uh, their anxiety and struggles with OCD. So what brought you into the place where you wanted to talk about those topics to people?
2: Wow, well, probably similar to you, it was just a topic that not enough people were talking about. You know, I'm sure that you probably feel similar about foster care. You know, we need more people talking about those issues. And, you know, as far as Christians that are struggling with some of these mental health conditions, I just saw a lot of people coming into my practice who were full of shame. They felt bad about struggling with anxiety and OCD. And I wanted to help give them hope and reduce some of that shame surrounding those, having those mental health conditions and struggling with them in the church. I wanted to let people know there's all kinds of different therapies that can help people who have anxiety and OCD. So we talk about things from a very clinical perspective and look at different therapy topics. But we also talk about the spiritual side of things. And sometimes I interview pastors, authors, and just everyday people who are struggling in their mental health journey and how they overcame certain things. So we cover a wide variety of issues, but I've really enjoyed it. I've been doing it for about a little over a year now.
0: Well, we also might have forgot to mention that you're a therapist as well. It's it's only just one more hat, right? Just just yeah. one little extra <laughs> piece of the puzzle. So you're a therapist who also has experience in the foster care world,
2: right? Now, mm-hmm. I'm
0: just gonna say I am always just blown away when I meet somebody who has some experience in the in the world of therapy who understands parts of the human brain that most people do not who then chose to go on and take on the struggles of kids in care. Can you talk about that for just a minute and how those, two, how those two have played together in your own experience?
2: Well, about 10 years ago, I was married to my first husband and felt just very passionate and called towards adoption. So through that process and that journey, really wanted to give a child a chance to have a family, maybe that Um, wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise, or whose family wasn't able to care for them. And so that led us on the foster care journey. And it actually did not work out towards adoption for us. That wasn't um, to be a part of our story, but it was definitely a learning process. I learned quite a bit about the challenges and struggles of you know parenting children that you feel very close to, but at the end of the day, aren't yours. And you have to be able to accept that lack of control. So there was so much, I think, that it allowed me to empathize more with my clients who had children because I didn't have any of my own biological children at the time. And it also allowed me to empathize with you know, children and teens who were just in very challenging places going through a lot of struggles. So I'm thankful for my experience of about, you know, roughly about two years of being a foster parent.
0: So I'm curious, did you take in primarily younger kids, older kids? Did you have the just run the full gamut?
2: So we were two to 12, and the youngest child that we had was almost four when she came to us, and the oldest child was 12.
0: That number scares me a little. I'm not going to lie.
2: <laughs> 12 years old? Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it was rough, you know, I think for that child, particularly because they had been in a couple different foster homes uh, before us, and... He had gotten acclimated and had friends in the last the area where the last foster home was. And we were a significant distance from that area. So there was loss of connections there. He had more freedom to do things because he had built up that trust versus when he just came to us, we were still trying to get to know him and what would be good for him. And he didn't have necessarily relationships where he could go to the kid down the street and hang out at their house, those types of things. So that was a rough transition for him
0: oh yeah not to mention you know we've had several 12 year olds in our house i mean what (laughs) five of them have come through that age group already Mm. of our own and no no more than five what a a lot how about that a lot of kids and so you know that's a tough age anyways you know puberty hits you know pre-puberty all that all that the Brain chemicals just dump in and do crazy things, and for us boys, that testosterone wash comes over half the brain and does brain damage. And I would <laughs> laugh about that because I, I look at teenage boys and I'm like, "Do you have brain damage, son? What's wrong with you? Why? Why would you even think to do that?" That's you know some of the stupid stuff that they do. You're like, "Something's wrong with you. You weren't this dumb a year ago." And truth <laughs> is, yeah, we do have brain damage, so you have to forgive us a little bit because that that whole period of time is. That's tough for us. So there's my excuse for being stupid all the time. Mom, if you're listening, there's my excuse for being a stupid teenager. <laughs> I, I had a, a real good excuse for it all. But yeah, so that that makes it a really tough time, those kids go through that. And then you add the extra trauma of whatever happened to them. Sure. Every story is different. And then that loss of a first family, you know, that loss of that perfect Warden June Cleaver ideal that everybody seems to think would have been if they hadn't been thrust into the situation and so so yeah being willing to take in kids that are up to 12 that's that's something a lot of people are a bit nervous about doing sure and i understand it i understand it we we tend to take kids younger than our youngest mostly because we have we have a bunch of kids you know the youngest four have been adopted through the system and so they have their own traumas and i don't need to bring in you know number one an older teen who has extra stuff that they haven't even dealt with that we're going to force them to deal with on top of that. Plus
1: well, we also have a teen daughter, but we have found for our family what works well and that's keeping our birth order. It doesn't, it doesn't make anybody feel like it, they lose their place. Yeah. And it's really big in our house with the traumas and, and things that we have.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Plus the last, the last kid that they called me about was a, I want to say it was a 15 year old male. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. And she's like, see, the, the worker, she started trying to trying to, to sell me on this. And I'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand. I have a 14-year-old daughter. I'm not bringing a 15-year-old boy into. no. that's. she goes, I
1: understand, never mind.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, you have
1: to think safety, too. You know, that that's a big, big issue across the board. And it's not necessarily that you want us to no, know because your heart breaks. You don't want to ever have to say no, but there's times that you do have to, you have to say no because you know what's best for your family. Yeah, yeah. But you also know by saying no, it's just one more person that said no to that kid.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough part of that situation. So when you guys first were looking into getting into to foster care, you know, or fostering to adopt, um, how, how did you and your husband, I, I think you said your first husband, right?
1: So mm-hmm. how did
0: you and he really approach it? Was that was that all your thoughts? Was that a joint effort? Was it um you know was it something you both wanted to get into?
2: No, it was really something that we had discussed even before we got married. Was adoption. That was just something that we both really wanted and felt passionate about and it seemed like the road towards foster care would be the the least expensive way to adopt and possibly you know the best process for us versus for example like going overseas and not necessarily having that relationship with the child before you proceed through with the adoption at least with foster care they're they're in your home you're taking that time to to gel as a family and to understand like how are these kids going to fit and those types of things so For that, it seemed like the best, looking at the different ways of adopting, that seemed the best for us. We also didn't feel um, as connected as far as adopting an infant or a baby because most people want to do that. They want to adopt younger kids. And we really felt like maybe we could give um, a sibling group like, um, you know, two or three older kids a chance to stay together. Since we didn't already have children in our home, you know, we had a little bit more flexibility and openness as far as placements that we could take those types of things. So I think we were approved for three children at the time. And so that's kind of what we, what we went with.
0: Well, I applaud you for your, for your, your efforts there because number one raising a sibling group is difficult for sure. Um, we've had a couple sibling groups come into our house, Uh, several of them actually i think at this point i'd lose i've lost track our two oldest that are adopted out of the system they were a sibling group as well but we were already parents we already had like we already had three of them well underway Mm -hmm. and we'd figured out those things you know how to do that and you guys are looking at stepping into it like right out the gate you know or do you have any background in child psychology or do you deal mostly with adults
2: well, at the time I was working with children and teens exclusively through counseling and now I work primarily with adults. So I've shifted and kind of let go of a lot of the the child and adolescent counseling as I've kind of progressed and my um you know business has changed a little bit, but at that time I was. But there's a big difference between having a child one hour at a time versus having a child 24 seven. So we were not prepared for the parenting part of things just because I was a therapist and just because I had studied child development.
0: <laughs> it at least gives you a little bit of understanding of that real reason why that 12 year old boy acts like his, he doesn't have a brain anymore. So, you know, <laughs> you a little bit of a step, I guess, maybe a little help. Yeah, that's, that's something else. So, uh, I know when, when I first saw your story, you know, you guys had, had stepped in for the foster to adopt road, right? And you know, you mentioned that like, it looked like that was one of those things that, that looked like a good pathway to you, but it just did not work out. Right. Can you talk about that just a little
2: bit. Sure. So our first placement was a uh, five-year-old and eight-year-old girls and, it seemed like they just really fit really well in our family we were told by dcs that they were at legal risk were the words that they used um, of becoming you know adoptable of the parental rights being terminated so everything seemed like a green light like okay well this is really great this is you know hopefully possibly the best of both worlds for them and for us, that this could really work out together. And unfortunately, in that situation, we really, in a sense, our rights were violated because we weren't told that there was a court date even, that DCS had, had gone to court and um, with the, there was a relative that they had been staying with And essentially, they lost, I I can't remember what the, the term of the hearing is called, but they lost the hearing saying that they had the rights to remove the children from that relative that they were staying with temporarily. So that was a huge shock to us. Essentially, we got a call. I was at work. I got out of a meeting, and I, got, you know, I had this message from the DCS worker like, you need to call us right now. I call up. She's like, I had no idea it was going to go this way. I would have told you had I known, or had we had any inkling that it was going to go this direction. And we need you to bring the the girls down to the office like right now. I was like, right now, like I'm at work. They're at, you know, um, school. I think it was actually kind of a half day, something of that nature when we. Um, And they so they were in the aftercare program and we essentially had to put everything that they owned in whatever we could find, which unfortunately was some trash bags. And we just kind of put together clothes and and toys and whatever they had and packed it all up, put it in the, you know, the back of the car and went and picked them up at daycare and said, hey, we're going to have to we're taking you back to you know, to the DCS office and you're going to be going to live with this family member. So it was just a total shock for, for everyone involved. And that was a hard, hard loss for us.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, I don't think we've had that occur in our journey yet. Anything quite like that. Um, We tend to have some, we've had always had more, uh, more time to to work through that in all of our situations. You know, we, all of our kids have all been like, Hey, you know, like the one of the last girls who stayed with us, it was actually an ICPC case. And for anybody not familiar, ICPC is interstate something, something compact, which basically means they lived about, you know, um, her bio mom was in our state and that's how she, she ended up in, in foster care in, in our County area. You know, I think it was the next County over, but in a, in our district and, um, and her, her parents lived across the line, because we live in Missouri. So she was over, they were in Illinois by about 20 miles. And because it was 20 miles away, they had to invoke this whole ICPC deal. And it's a lot of paperwork that goes from from the worker up to the supervisor, up to the county manager, up to the state, then over to the the other state. And then it goes, filters down through that state to the worker over there. And it filters back and forth several, several times until they get it all worked out. And it took them almost six months to get this little girl moved, you know, the 70 miles away from us that she was because it was 20 miles over the state line. Right. And it was, it was really difficult for her because I mean, she wanted to be with, with her biological family and you know, grandma and grandpa were good people. We met them several times. We did visits and all that. They were good. People had nothing wrong with them. We were never upset with them. Uh, but the, the, the system caused that to be a long drawn out unfortunate process. And so that's mostly what we've dealt with. Those things like that. Never a real sudden. Bring the kid in. They're leaving you today. Yeah, I can't imagine how hard that was to to deal with when, whenever they show up and they just say, "Hey, um, by the way, you got to drop everything you're doing and play with our, you know, play our game now." That's man, that's hard to even think about.
2: Yeah. And it was hard to communicate to the kids because in their mind, they had been already been told this relative can't take care of you. Right. So we come in and we say, OK, well, you're going back to the office and you're going to go live with this relative. And they were like, but wait a minute. We were told that that, that relative wasn't able to take care of us. And now we're being told we're going back with them. So that was something that was confusing for for them. I can only imagine you know what that shock was like because as you know when kids move then it's oftentimes it's a it's a different school you know you're in a you're in a, even if it's a close move you know you end up in a different school zone and and now you're you're changing and disrupting that process and all of that
0: oh yeah oh yeah that so that that's a lot of extra added trauma so how many kids did you guys end up having comes to stay with you for a while
2: We had a total of nine children over the, you know, about two year period that we were foster parents.
0: Nine is a lot in two
2: years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's quite a bit. Did you have any other experiences like that?
2: We did. So we had a sibling group of three that came to us about a month before their termination of parental rights hearing. And DCS, once again, was convinced, you know, these parents' rights are about to be taken away. We're going to, you know, we have the case to show that, that this was, I think the allegation was severe abuse. There was, a, you know, some severe abuse and we're, they're going to be terminated about a month. And so we're going to need an adoptive home for them because this other placement fell through, you know, this long-term placement. Um, they disrupted and they weren't going to adopt the children. So we're putting them in your home. And we thought, well, wow, that's, that's a lot. That's really shocking. You know, about a month you're asking us to commit to adoption. That just seems really kind of rushed. And we're like, we don't know about that. They were actually really great kids. We enjoyed having them in our house. Um, they were very bonded together as siblings, which I think helped them a lot, be able to get through the trauma was that they were able to really like lean on each other. Um, and in that situation, the that was with the 12-year-old, and the 12-year-old ended up testifying at the termination of parental rights hearing. I actually, since I wasn't didn't have anything to contribute because they hadn't been in my home that long, they allowed me to sit through the whole trial. And I got to hear all of the, the allegations and the defense and so forth and so on. And I really believed that... The judge made the right decision for those kids, and that was that, you know, DCS lost again, and they were reunited with their family system. The person that had abused them was gone by that time, um, and so they wouldn't have had contact with that person, um, you know, in the family system. And I really felt at peace, like, okay, this is the right decision for them. But once again, it was also a very sudden move. And I had asked DCS, I said, okay, so because of our past situation, I said, so if you lose in court, if they go back to the family, is that kind of a a sudden thing? Is it all at once? And they said, oh, well, you know, they'll have to make arrangements and this and that. No, it was pretty much like we're coming to get them and their stuff and they're going to go back right now. So it was another very sudden transition. You know, I think court got done towards the end of the day, maybe like, you know, four to five. And it was probably about an hour away from from us. And since a couple of the kids were at daycare and the, you know, the 12 year old just kind of like went with family right away. And then we picked up the other kids from daycare and they came and got all of their the children and all of their stuff that evening. So that was another kind of. Uh, very sudden and shocking thing but they were happy to go back they wanted to go back so it was a little bit different in the sense that it was a much more positive transition i felt like than our first sudden transition
0: yeah yeah that's wow those are always hard you know i even on most most of those situations i think a, a slower transition would be the healthiest thing for the kids you know A couple of overnight stays and, you know, and moving or overnight in a weekend or something like that, just to ease some way to ease that transition because kids don't do transition well anyways. Right. Let's just be honest that, you know, they struggle through that because of the way their brains are wired. And so easing them into that is usually the best way to do it, in my opinion. But again, as I mentioned before, my psychology degree Mm -hmm. hanging on the wall over here was it was Made by me with crayons, so they won't listen to my, <laughs> my thoughts. <laughs> so
1: I mean, you mentioned something earlier, and, and it's that control. There's such a lack of control, and it's so out of your hands, right? So many yeah. times that I, I walk away from from dealings with children's division and just shake my head, like I have no idea as to what's going on here. I'm so lost, and I'm so in the fog. And I hear that so often from foster parents is that. You know, we just feel like we're not heard. We don't know what's going on. And it's a little aggravating, you know, feeling lost. And there is definitely that loss of control. Mm -hmm.
2: There's a sense of powerlessness of not being able to, I mean, you can advocate. That's probably not the right word that I want to use. You know, you can advocate, but ultimately you're not in control of the outcome. So it's like you can say your piece, but then... DCS can come in and say well nope but this is what we're doing you know or a judge that may not have the whole story is like well this is this is my ruling and this is what's happening and then you're kind of powerless at that point and you've you've kind of done all that you can do that's hard
0: oh yeah or you can sit after the hearing and you get up and walk out because they did not make a ruling on a family placement's desire to be you know a family member's desire to be a placement and sit for how many months did we wait before the judge made that ruling?
1: Oh my goodness, probably five to seven months?
0: Yeah, wow. He took a lot of time and now that particular judge we you know we've had a lot of dealings with him, and you know, if Judge Frowley ever hears this and wants to come on the podcast, I'd love to talk to him because Judge Frowley was friggin awesome. He was just, he was a really good judge and, you know, he had kids in, from the foster system that he had himself adopted. He had a lot of experience and he was one of the ones who was willing to always stand up for the rights of the kids. So, you know, the fact that he took that long to make that decision was because it was a grandparent who wanted, who wanted placement. And I think he made the right decision, you know, and I, those kids are still with us today, so I won't, I won't really talk about the whys or anything there, but um, but I understand why it was a hard decision for him to make. That was a really tough one because I would be hard pressed to feel like I'd made the right decision if that was my job, you know? So some of those situations are just super difficult and hard for them to, to come up with, with all the the right answers at the right time. The legal system is full of mistakes. You know, the legal system is full of complicated things. The foster care system, just like so many other systems um, that the government runs, you know, the healthcare system, they're, they're all broken. And we do what we can to, um, we do what we can to do the best that we can do with what we have. And unfortunately, because we have humans involved, we will never get it all right. But it's, it's super difficult to, uh, to figure those out. So did you guys have any placements that you, you know, that you look at back on with, with a lot of fondness or, or memories of, of, um, difficulties that, that you went through that really maybe bound you together a little bit?
2: Well, I think that as far as fondness, I think definitely our first placement with the two girls. There was a lot of fun that we had. Um, there were there were good things that we we were able to do. Um, really, just kind of in that season of getting them settled in and ready for school. And unfortunately, they they went back shortly after they started school. But there was a lot of preparation of um, you know getting them the clothing needed for school, the school supplies, getting connected in terms of our local foster care group and community and being able to play with other kids at back to school functions and those types of things was a lot of fun. Um, Enjoyed having the, you know, I always think about holidays, I think, when I think about my foster children because there were things that we celebrated. So when I think about the the placement of the three children, I think about the 4th of July and how we went to uh, the 4th of July celebration in town and, and had a lot of fun there. Um, you know, they were only there for with us for about a month. So it was a very short period. But also just in terms of that process of trying to think about preparing them for going back to school as well. And, and what were they going to need and trying to figure out where they were educational educationally um, as far as if they were on grade level or not those types of things so good good memories i think there and our most challenging placement was the little girl who was um, four years old at the time she was um, a very challenging placement and there were a lot of things circumstantially necessarily that we didn't realize going into taking that placement and that made it more complex and, and complicated.
0: Yeah. A lot of those things that we don't always understand that that's, that's part of the complications of the system. I think is that this kid shows up and you have a, the little bit of the background that somebody told somebody that a caseworker kind of knows and they share as much with you as they think they should. And sometimes that's not much of the story and we're handed the kid who has a big story that we don't know anything at all about
2: right and watch out when they say no behavior problems (laughs) because (laughs) of course they have no behavior problems when they're being raised by a family member and being given things that they want and in in her case um she was somewhat the little princess and spoiled and um in that in that dynamic and when she came to us then there were rules and standards and you couldn't eat peanut butter and jelly three times a day for every meal so that was there were some uh some food battles a little bit over that we did let her eat a lot of peanut butter and jelly but we also had to say you know you need to eat a variety of of other foods as well Um, she ended up having a huge growth spurt when she was with us probably because we got her to eat a variety of different foods but (laughs) Uh, that was—I remember them telling us, "Oh, there's no, there's no behavioral issues with her. She's, you know, she's compliant." But unfortunately, that that wasn't the case, and we didn't realize either that even though she was technically an only child, she had been raised around other half siblings or. Um, You know, a person that she believed was her father that didn't have rights to her. And so there were additional losses that we didn't realize were there for her. You know, and so here she is wondering, you know, she's so young and can't understand why can't I be around these people that I call my brothers and sisters? Why can't I be around this person that I call dad? Because that was, you know, who she knew. But of course, due to complications of the system, couldn't actually take her in. Um, because they didn't have legal rights to her. So there were there was a lot of sadness there with that with that case. And I think that because of all the loss that she was dealing with, the only way that she knew how to handle that was to dig in her heels and try to take control and and basically, you know, tell us <laughs> in a four year old way, screw you, I'm gonna do what I want. <laughs> so.
1: That's always so much fun. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know our very
0: first uh very first placement the workers and and we've been told you know to watch for code words right watch for that code language you're going to hear some interesting ways of of saying things like you know kid has challenging behavior and when the worker very right off, uh, when they handed us our certificate to say that we were now licensed foster parents at that moment she said now i want to talk to you about a couple kids and the very first thing she says they're um they're pretty rambunctious. Like, whoa, <laughs> hang on, hang on. If you're going to start with that word, what exponent do I need to put on it to know what the truth is? <laughs> and after she came back it, I think it was the next month um, for the for her first visit, you know, the, the month out visit. And she says, wow, these kids have really slowed down. She said, "When I, the last time I saw them at their last placement, when I walked in, they were running and jumping up on top of the table, run across the table and jump off the table. And I'm like, Oh, so that's what you mean by rambunctious. Now I understand.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, if you are thinking about getting into foster care, just know that, that that keywords are there for a reason. Know what they're saying and just be prepared to deal with a little bit more than what, what maybe it's advertised as. Because it is difficult. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it was difficult to get kids not to be the kids who want to run and jump on and off the table. But it's worth it when you, once you teach them a handful of things like, hey, this is a safe place where you don't have to act wild just to have control. You know? Yeah. It's taken a lot of time for some of those kids to learn that too, you know. But that's that's part of why it makes it worth it because once they actually learn that, it changes so much of their life.
2: Yeah. And there's absolutely no way for a caseworker or anyone to be able to predict how a child is going to respond once they're removed from you know, the only environment they've ever known in and be placed in a completely different environment. There's no way to predict how they're going to act or or respond to that.
0: Oh yeah. You know, I'm a little bit of a brain science nerd myself. And so when, when I see those things happening, and it's like, oh yeah, this kid's only how old you don't know what they're going when they're amygdala spikes, are they going to be fight flight, you know, freeze or Mm -hmm. one of the other handful of ones they've come up with to add to that list now you know how do they how do they respond in their survival mode because that's usually what those behaviors are it's that survival mode kicking in absolutely and and if you can see that and recognize that it's not so big of a deal with the kids a little bit rambunctious Mm Hmm. sorry we have some baby noises um (laughs) But we're just gonna have to deal with that today. I like her, she's cute, and I think the baby noises are cute, so I leave them in. It's way too much work to edit that out, so y'all get to hear the noises we hear as we do this.
1: She's very cute. Thank you.
0: Yeah, she's she's pretty sweet too, and that makes it makes it even easier because you know, cute and sweet's a good combination for a little girl.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. But I mean we have found that structure, you know, the you know, the creating a schedule, you know, so that a child knows, okay, I get up, I do this, I do that, and then we're going to do this, you know, and they know, and I mean, we had some kiddos that you could not deviate from that structured schedule. And if you did, oh, buddy, you were in trouble, you know, and, but every, every child is different, you know, and every case is different. Um, do yeah. you think you will maybe try again with the system or are you done?
2: No, I don't know. <laughs> I am mean, thinking only God knows the answer to that question. Um, right now in our county, we have an Isaiah 117 house being built. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization or not, but they provide a place for kids to go while they're waiting on a placement so that they don't have to stay in the DCS office in in a cubicle or in a conference room or things like that. And they provide them with a meal and Um, you know, if they need to take a shower, they can take a shower there and and so forth before transitioning to a placement. So my, um, husband and I are hoping to be more involved with that organization so maybe um, being involved in the foster care community is support in a little bit different way than necessarily taking kids um, into our home. But we we just had a baby of our own, our first child. So that's really our focus at home right now. But um, definitely my heart is, is still involved in foster care. And every Christmas, we usually adopt a foster child to provide gifts for at Christmas. So I know that in some way, shape, or form, I'll always be connected to the foster care community and supporting foster parents and the system, even if I don't ever actually go back and become a foster parent myself.
0: Can okay, you said an Isaiah 118 house? Is that what you
2: mentioned? 117. Close.
0: Yeah. I was Close. You know, I grew up in a fundamentalist church. You'd think I'd be able to remember those, those verses better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) People will be mad at me if they see me messing that up. I've never heard of that organization before. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That sounds fairly interesting to me.
2: Yeah. So they have homes in the Southeast Um, where I'm at is they're building a home in Murfreesboro, Tennessee uh, right now. And I think they started I can't remember what the town they started in in Tennessee, but it was a rural town and the idea behind it was that you know if you if you get a placement at three a m say for example, maybe even a baby, you may not have anything for that baby. you may not have diapers, you may not have wipes or and so it it provides a way to to reduce stress on the foster parents of having to go run out and buy all of those things they're able to to set parents up with some of the those initial you know materials and things that they need and also provides a home where kids can go to you know if they are taken maybe in the middle of the night then they can get some sleep the foster parents can be contacted the next day they can you know, receive, if they have lice, they can treat the kids for lice before putting them in the new placement. There's all kinds of different things that they do, but just trying to ease the trauma of the transition of when you first come into custody is really what their their focus is on. And so they have different volunteers that, that come and and staff the house or come and bring. um, So right now, since they don't have the home in our community, what they're doing is they're bringing um, fast food meals like to the office. Um, They also do different things for the caseworkers. So they may come and bring them coffee one day and just show them some appreciation and love, you know, support because that's a hard role as well. So they do a variety of, of different things like that.
1: I mean, that, that is, that's really amazing um you know i think every community could use something like that for our children because i can't tell you the emails and the posts that i see these kids are sleeping in the office tonight there's no right. place for them to go the social worker is staying with them you know and they they might not even have a cot they might just have a blanket and a pillow and have to lay on the dirty carpeted floor and how humiliating is that you're taken from your home. You're taken from the people who you love. Regardless of what's going on in that situation, children always love their parents, whether right. they're starved, abused, neglected, whatever. That's their family. That's their normal. That's what they know. That's what they love. You take them from that and tell them, no, you can't be here, but I have no place for you. How degrading.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yeah. so every community could use something like that. I mean, that it would be just amazingly wonderful so I think that's so great that that's coming to your community for these kids because our kids need it all Mm -hmm. kids need it all kids deserve some dignity right
2: and that was actually our first placement we only had him for a weekend he was kind of in a in a transition situation and had had you know he couldn't be placed with other children so that really cut out obviously a lot of foster homes that they could have placed him in and that that was the phone call I got on a Friday was you know I just you know you don't have to take this kid but I want you to know that he's going to sleep on the floor of the office if nobody takes him in and here's the situation and he's kind of high risk and we can't have him around other children and I said it's okay I said you can bring him you can bring him over so he stayed with us for the weekend and. You know, just kind of hung out and put puzzles together and watched some TV and did different kid things, and and then he was on to kind of his next place. But that was that was going to be his reality, really, if if we didn't take him in that weekend.
1: Oh, absolutely. We have we have been there too. You know, we take we take young ones, you know, to keep our birth order because that works for us. But we also, you know, our wheelhouse is, is addicted children so we take in the addicted babies the you know we've had children that were just you know being drugged to be complicit by their parents but you know that's how we ended up with our first teen and we had said that we were never going to take teens um but you know we got that phone call and said hey we have nowhere for this child if you don't you know can you at least take him for the weekend until we can find something out because if you don't we're going to have to place him in Boystown, which is basically a juvenile detention center. Hmm. What? What kid deserves that? I mean, and so I was like, okay, I, I can do the weekend, but you know, only the weekend. And then, of course, the weekend passed, and oh, we have no place. So you know, he he's gonna have to go there. It's it's either that or, you know, a hospital, you know, detention center. And it's like, how how can you send a kid? knowing that's what's going to happen you know and so we ended up keeping him and come to find out there was a lot of issues that we were not told and at six weeks worth of placement we were the longest placement this child had ever had and he had been in several homes wow you know and, and it really was it was an experience um and we did have to abruptly disrupt you know there were some extreme safety concerns and that's the only time that we have ever had to abruptly disrupt. But still, even with the situation that was going on, it was heartbreaking. You know, and we didn't know what to do. And we couldn't get a whole lot of help. And it was to the point where our, our biological children were about ready to do things that they shouldn't do to protect mom. Yeah.
0: Yeah, those are those are hard situations for us to have to figure out how to deal with and to work through because, you know, number one, did this kid make some mistakes? Yeah, he made some mistakes. His biggest mistake was thinking that he could buck up to a woman who dealt with a lot bigger badder people in her life than he was, <laughs> and both of my boys were making the mistake of assuming that mom needed their help because, quite frankly, um, my wife doesn't look like she's going to, you know, she could take your head off, but... Um she went she had a rough childhood. she knows how to handle herself, but you know all those situations come about because somebody else put a kid through some heavy trauma and he's making trauma decisions that are going to turn out to be bad for all these people involved, so it was a super difficult situation to sit through, you know, but you know as we sit back and we try and decide you know are we making the right decisions? you know are we deciding the right thing for this kid, and that one I'm certain we did um. Yeah. he did end up having a family member who stepped up and and took him in and, and so he he went to a family placement and that was a good thing for him but you know we we struggle through these things and we watch how how the whole system treats everybody and it doesn't seem fair sometimes to the bio parents sometimes to the you know adoptive or foster parents it's definitely rarely seems very fair to the kids you know how was that like for you guys as you went through your journey did you see those parts you know did did that did that play a part in you guys deciding to step back from the role of actual foster parent or was was that something that you learned to work your way through
2: hmm. yeah so i just want to clarify is the the question kind of about like system complications that we saw
0: yeah, I mean, is 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 the system complications? Is that part of your decision to step back for a little while, or and oh yeah, before I forget, congratulations on the new baby. We you mentioned that we kind of stepped right from one topic to another, and you know that could very well be a reason why you've stepped back as well. So you know, what is uh, did did the the difficulties and complications in that play a role in that decision, or was it no.
2: something? Else? Um, Really what happened um, with my first husband was he decided that he didn't want to be married anymore um, during our last foster placement of um, two children. So that was a complete shock to me. I didn't know that my marriage was headed down that road and um, we ended up disrupting that placement um, because I couldn't – neither one of us could really – be with them um, and parent them on our own financially and so forth we would have had to obviously rewrite the whole home study and show that we could have afforded our bills and those types of things and i ended up um, taking in roommates to be able to pay my mortgage so much obviously you know transition and things that happen um, when you go through divorce so that is what ended the foster parent journey uh, really for you know, for us at that time, and it was very unfortunate because I felt very bad about that additional trauma that that added to those children and that additional disruption. We weren't allowed to tell them that we were getting a divorce, so they were somewhat in the dark about why they were being moved. They just knew that um, that there were some transitions happening in our family was essentially kind of what they were told. Um, and they were elementary school aged, um, and then they went to another i guess pre-adoptive type placement and maintained um i maintained a little bit of contact with them after they left but then kind of eventually lost contact
0: okay yeah and well that sudden unexpected divorce is a complicating factor i would imagine
2: yes absolutely
0: i fortunately have um managed to make amanda put up with me for oh, it's been a little over 20 years now that she's been putting up with me. And I think she has me well enough trained that I don't have to worry about that anytime soon because she doesn't want to spend two decades retraining another another guy, so.
2: <laughs> well, congratulations on you guys.
0: <laughs> but yeah, wow, I can't even imagine going through that. You know, even even on the best of days, I can't imagine how, how you walk through that. You know, um, that has to be, like one of those most difficult, I mean, you lost, you're losing a relationship with with a husband and with kids.
2: Right, yeah. Essentially, I went from a family of four to being by myself. And it was very hard. It was devastating. Um, I only got through it by the grace of God and because I clung to my faith a lot and my support system, my church at the time. Just different people rallied around and loved me through it in spite of all the, the messiness that I experienced and I just had to, to really just trust that um, that things were going to be okay. And so life that was, you know, back in 2015. So life is a lot different now and I've had a lot of, of healing and I was able to get remarried and so forth um, in 2020. So life is is much different and life is good now. And so I'm thankful for all of the hard things that I've been through that have caused me to be a better person. I think it's interesting though, because even through the divorce process, you know, you talk about the system and how things affected us. One of the things that my ex told me was that he never really felt like he was able to fully process through the loss of our first foster placement. And I think that that had a profound impact on us that, you know, possibly we didn't fully recover from it. I wouldn't blame that for the divorce. I think there were a multitude of different thing, you know, factors that went into that and, um, you know, individually and as a couple. But that was really a loss that we weren't, A, weren't prepared for and B, didn't know how to deal with because how do you help someone? who has lost a child you know two children that weren't really theirs you know in the first place and then just that sense of unknowing and losing that connection not knowing you know are those children okay whatever whatever happened to them you know to this day we don't know so that's that's a hard piece sometimes of foster care that happens
0: oh yeah yeah because i you know amanda had to step out with baby girl because she's a little bit upset right now but you know, you're speaking about part of our story in in a just a slightly different angle. You know, our we lost our oldest daughter, but it's been seven years now um, mm. that we lost her. And one of those things you learn through that process is after losing a child, divorce is really common,
1: right? Yeah, you know,
0: that kind of grief and is is so very difficult to to handle. You know, especially you know being being you know kids who. You know in your experience kids who you guys were were actually considering the adoption you know these kids could very well become part of your family and anybody who's been down that road understands that as you know these kids may still be at legal risk they may still go back to the you know their family they they may or may not and you know that you're supposed to guard your heart but um how well do we guard our hearts in those moments
2: Yeah, it's pretty much impossible to do that. You know, to fully love somebody, you have to open yourself up and you're opening yourself up to potentially be hurt. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people away from foster care. They'll say things like, oh, I could never send them back, you know, and there's a beauty in the pain. Sometimes it's just hard to explain. There
0: is always a beauty in the pain. You know, and that's, that's one of the, the lessons that, that I try and, and give to as many people I find that need it is that if we could walk through the loss of a child and I can find a way to bring some beauty out of that, you can find beauty in any pain. I promise you, it's there. And if you can share that beauty with the world, that makes the pain have some meaning. It's one of the few things that makes, because I'm going to tell you something, that idea that pain heals all wounds is a lie. It is a dirty, rotten lie. It does not heal all wounds. It makes them a little bit, a little bit easier to get up every morning and breathe. Mm -hmm. But the only thing I've found that even feels close to healing is to be able to come, come to the place where that pain is something where you can take the lessons you've learned and help others go through their hard times with, with your experience. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm just curious if, if perhaps is that part of what you're you're doing with your podcast is that related at all, or is that just an area of interest for you, and that's why you went there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in my in my first episode, I talk about all, some of the things that we're talking about now. I talk about um, losing my foster children. I talk about um, going through the divorce process. I talk about how my faith was shaped and impacted by those different things. I talk about being very conscientious and wanting to do the right thing. And, and I think have always had somewhat of a bent towards anxiety. So I understand it. um, And, and that's, you know, part of producing the podcast, I think is, is therapeutic. It is that healing process. It's, what would younger Carrie have needed to heal? And when I say younger Carrie, it, it may be just Carrie five to 10 years ago. You know, I did a, a show on um, hope for for the not yet mothers, I think is is what I called it. And it was before I became pregnant, just thinking about being older and that process and, and how I just recorded different people and their story of becoming a family. Some of them were pregnancy, some were adoption. And so it was just you know, sending out encouraging messages, I think that I wish that I had had. So that is a a part of it.
0: Well, that's awesome that you're able to use some of your own experiences like that because I think that's where we really can create meaning in our lives out of the hard things. And that's really the only thing we can do with them that's worthwhile because most of the rest of the people in this world who can't figure out how to do that, end up finding some sort of negative coping mechanism, some way to numb the pain, some way to to push it away and, and not not walk through it and experience it. And, you know, I'm, lest I sound like I'm too high on my high horse over here, um, I have been that guy. I have been that guy. There's a reason why I can tell you I have been have not had a drink in five years, three months, and 20 days as of this recording because I know when the last one was. I had my numbing mechanisms. I did my own stupid stuff for a while because I did not know how to handle that kind of pain. So the fact that you're using some of your own difficulties to help people out is amazing. That's just truly amazing. Um, I also wanted to ask another question here because you mentioned a couple times how your faith has been part of your journey is was is that part of part of your reason to foster and adopt because you know i know that one of the things i always said was you know because i came out of a church that i felt was spiritually abusive for me uh whether they intended it that way or not that's that's what i came out of it um feeling like i had experienced and so i was a little bit self-righteous about about religious folks I mean, and by that, I mean probably a lot. And I was on my own high <laughs> horse for a good long while. Amanda laughed at me because she knows the truth. Uh, you know, but, you know, I, I remember, I remember listening to, to an episode. If you remember Dr. James Dobson when he had right. a program, right? <laughs> and he had an episode where he's talking about, about how the, uh, the American foster system at the time, he said if one family out of every third church would adopt a kid out of the foster system today, they would empty the system. And I sat back, going, "Yeah, yeah." So, what are all you supposedly holy people doing? Yeah, I had my little, my little self righteous moment there, and this little voice in the back of my mind's like, "What you doing, a hole? Well, how do you <laughs> think you're so cool? You know." And that was really that for me. That was a crux of of how how I started thinking through that that process. You know, for Amanda, it was a little bit different. You know, but how did your faith play into your your family's decision to to start helping kids?
2: You know, I think that understanding from from my spiritual Christian faith perspective that I've been adopted into God's family and it wasn't anything that I did it was just you know something that God did for me and so as a result just wanting to extend that to someone else to a child to say like okay you know you can be a part of my family and you don't have to earn your way in here. There's there's not a test. It's just because we love you and we've been loved. And so we want to give that love to somebody else and that sense of family and community and support to you. I think I, I get a little frustrated sometimes with some of the language in Christian circles about foster children being orphans and, you know, they're modern day orphans. And that, that really rubs me the wrong way. And, and sorry if this is a side tangent, but you know, they're not orphans. They do have a biological family oftentimes. I mean, occasionally children in the foster care system may have lost both parents, but I would say that that, you know, and you could speak from your experience, that's probably relatively rare. You know, they typically have one or both parents, or they have some kind of relative, you know, situation that's that's caring for them. So they're not orphans in that sense of like a child in Africa where their parents have died of AIDS, but at the same time. Um, you know, I, I think we do have a, a calling or a responsibility as Christians to care for those who are in um, dire situations, not just children in the foster care system, but people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, people who are in a really low place in, in prison, people that have had, had a rough life, people that are homeless. You know, it's it's our job and our calling to look out for for other people and to love them the way that Jesus would want us to. So that's, that's you know, part of my faith story and belief system.
0: Well, I would agree with, with you pretty heartily on most of that because I look back and having come out of a religious tradition where I felt like, you know, that whole high and mighty super religious, like we're the only ones going to heaven. All the rest of y'all are going to hell kind of mentality. At least that's. That's what I took out of it, right? And I look mm-hmm. back at it and when I read that book, do you ever notice who Jesus hangs out with and who he doesn't like? The biggest yeah. <laughs> problem he had was from those high and mighty religious folks that thought they were the only ones and, and then everybody else was horrible. And then he hung out with a lot of prostitutes and thieves and, and a lot of what would be considered today the modern day kind of dregs of society would, would right. be the, the real model that we have. And so I, I oftentimes look at that and go, Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people have the wrong view of that, you know. They you know, that, that idea of of being adopted through grace, you know, because of nothing I did on my own. And if you want to take that to its logical extent, now I'm not gonna argue the theology with anybody, but you know, the whole idea of original sin, you know, where the thing that we carry within us from the beginning and so, through no fault of our own, we were born because we were born of a family that started out with with problems and and sin and difficulty, and we ended up still adopted through that hard place into into the family of God. And so I look at that and I go, man, there's some some real parallels to draw here." and that's why I feel that this this whole adoption journey that we have been on and the foster care journey that we have been on feels like a true calling and the longer we have done it the more and more i feel like that calling is is really a part of of my purpose for being here on this earth you know it's not to take kids away from people but to provide safe places for kids to begin a little bit of healing and i think that's that's the safest way for anybody to come into this into this journey is to come with that mindset
2: yeah and not everybody's in a place to be a foster parent but They can all support foster parents or support their local agency whatever that looks like you know there's just so many different ways whether it's bringing a meal to foster parents that you know whether it's you know donating your you know gently used clothing to somebody um, who takes in children just so many different options and availability to help
1: oh absolutely i mean respite you know we we talked with one mom and her schedule was so crazy with her children. She had actually found someone that could drive her children to like sports and drop them off or um, appointments that weren't necessarily an appointment where she needed to be there. And she had found that support. And I was like, holy cow, if I had that, that would be amazing. If I had someone that could take away at least one therapy trip a week for me, you know, there, there's so many things that, that can be done. You don't have to be a foster home. Not everybody's equipped for that. Not everybody can handle that. You know, and the thing is, is one of the things that gets me is, you know, so many people, oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't love a child and give them back.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, I I would just fall so in love. And I'm like, that's what they need. They need somebody who will fall in love, that will take the time to fall in love and grieve when they leave because they've made such wonderful progress
2: yeah
0: yeah that's that's been part of our story as, as we've looked at it because you know and as a as a fo- as somebody who's been a foster parent you probably heard a lot of those statements that you know the things like absolutely yeah, yeah And it just makes you you makes your insides crawl a little bit i don't know about you but for me it does you know because I, I think the backhanded compliment there is that oh yeah i could i could never do that i could never let them go I'm glad you you know, but you can like I I'm, I would love them too much. I have too much in my heart, and, but but you can do that. You, you you must not, you know. I'm like no no, we're willing to walk through the pain too.
2: Yeah yeah, we convince ourselves all the time that there's things that we can't do that we actually can do.
0: Amen oh, to yeah. that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, you know, and and being a foster parent for how many years now? I
0: don't going on thirteen. 13 going on 14 or 14. It's it's been a lot.
1: It's been a a learning process. We have have done a lot of things that I did not think I could do. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had a lot of cases where we had to do a lot of hard things, you know, and we've had to let go of many children that we would have loved, loved to have forever. But they went on to better places where they were supposed to be with family, you know, because family is so important. If you can keep that connection for a child it is the best thing that you can do for them. Because I've been down that road. I was that kid. I should have been in the system. I needed someone to care enough for me. And that's, that's how I make my decisions, is I didn't get that. So every kid that walks through my door gets that. I don't care if it's a foster kid. I don't care if it's one of my kid's friends. If you walk through my door, you're mine. And I'm going to treat you accordingly. And I think all children need that. They need they need that stability. They need that person. They need that constant someone that they can trust that no matter what happens, no matter what they've done, no matter if they stole 20 bucks from somebody at school or, you know, they came home late or whatever, they need to know that there's somebody that's going to be there to care for them. And I think that's what we need to do for as adults. We need to be taking care of our children. Because one day they're going to take care of us. Hopefully, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping (laughs) one out of the eight will.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my goals: is to make certain that one of our kids is successful enough to put us in a in a retirement home that doesn't beat us too often.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Goals, you got to have them. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, and I'm I'm leaning towards the oldest now because he's um he's an LPN, so he'll he'll have some inside knowledge, right? And right now nurses get paid ridiculous money and so i keep telling me you need to be putting some money away from me later bud you need to be taking care of me because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm preparing for this so do you just you just be ready to take care of mom and dad here in a few years i don't know if that's going to work that way or not
1: <laughs> we'll see
0: <laughs> but yeah it's amanda's talking about you know the the way that you fall in love with some of these kids i mean on my left arm i have all of my kids tattooed around a family tree if you look across my chest, there's a handful of kids there as well that, that made that connection that, that are also on that wall of tattoos because you, you love them no, enough.
1: And they're no longer with us.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, I, I have tattoos for almost all of my placements because my placements have left marks on my heart. You know, mm-hmm. they will never be forgotten. I think about them often. I pray for them. I hope they're still doing well. We don't get to see the majority of them, but we do get to see a few through Facebook. You know, a lot of times parents don't want to keep that connection after their children are home. They don't want to be reminded of the worst thing in their life. Because as a parent, that is the worst thing. The worst thing, other than losing your child to death, that is the worst thing, is not being able to be a parent. Losing Mm -hmm. your children and not having access to them. I could not, I couldn't do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we say we couldn't. I guess you probably could, but you know, nobody is willing to do it voluntarily because it's so very difficult to even imagine what that's like. And that's been an informative part of our some of our decisions as well as foster parents is knowing that that's what their bio family's going through, right? That's what their bio mom is dealing with, and bio dad maybe um, you know one or one or both of them is is struggling through that. And so it's it's an interesting part of this experience to to deal with the biological mom and dad, because sometimes, sometimes they're horrible human beings. But most of the time, and I mean most of the time, they're just a normal human who's going through something hard. And this is a a real complicating factor on top of it. So as foster parents, sometimes it's difficult to keep that in in the fore of your mind, but it's the best thing for the kids. So that's what we, we need to do.
2: Right. And oftentimes those parents have had their own trauma and it's essentially like generational trauma that's being passed down, you know, from, from one to the other.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. That generational trauma. We, we've had several kids in our home who we've talked to, you know, some of the police officers in the area who've maybe been around for a minute and they're like, oh yeah, I remember when her mom was in foster care. And wow. you go, oh, wait, what? Okay. So that like this is a generational problem for sure. We've seen it in our own little bitty town out here in rural Missouri. And I know that as I talk to people who who say they have the same thing everywhere, that's a real problem, is the generational side of this. Yeah. So since you're the one with the real training and expertise here, how do we solve generational trauma?
2: Wow. That's a that's a huge <laughs> question. <laughs> and I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I look at it with the clients that I work with. That some of them have been in really hard places and they broke that cycle. You know, they. They came from an abusive situation, but they didn't abuse their kids or they came from a situation of neglect, but now they're caring and very loving and invested, involved in their children's lives. And I I think about that often, you know, what is that resiliency piece? And I think that, you know, you two are a part of it. You're part of that resiliency piece of if there's something that we don't get from our parents, sometimes we can get that from a teacher from a foster parent, from a friend's parent, from you know somebody that really comes in and loves us in a deep, valuable way, or shows us um, some discipline, you know, in a healthy way, who shows us that they're invested and they're involved, that we're that we matter, that we're valuable. And so even if somebody doesn't get that from their family system, there is a resiliency sometimes that can come from outside that family system that causes that cycle to break and for them to be able to, to have had a rough childhood and still have a good and healthy adulthood. And it's, it's absolutely amazing whenever you, you see it, because sometimes I look at some of my clients and I think oh my goodness, like how, how are you even here living a productive adult life? Like you're, you're amazing that you're, you're able to do the things that you've done and not ended up in a situation where you were homeless or a situation where you were seriously suicidal, addicted, those types of things. So, yeah.
0: Well, now that we have solved generational trauma,
1: In five minutes.
0: (laughs) In five. See, that's all we need to do. We're gonna Uh, change the world.
1: I I just, I I have to interject (laughs) um, because it took me way longer than five minutes to break that. Yeah, it's a lifelong commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's an ongoing choice. Yeah, because sometimes the road gets really hard. You know, and there's still things that will drop you down to your knees
0: yeah it's really difficult for most people to break those generational cycles like that and so i don't i don't know that we'll we'll ever get to that place in life where it's simple and 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 easy to put the pieces together but conversations like this hopefully help people find their way through that difficulty and that's what we truly hope with this yeah So, Carrie, I want to thank you for coming in and telling your story today because experience like this is invaluable. Knowledge, like you have, is invaluable. And, you know, you have been through the ringer. You have been through the hard stuff and come out the other side. Not only just survived it, but you're come out the other side swinging for the fences, trying to help people in your way. And so I'm just always amazed when I see people go through hard times and come out trying to make the world better still not bitter and angry but still struggling towards better so thank you so much for your time and your story today
2: yeah thank you for having me on your show and and thank you for just bringing a voice and a light to just a very important issue uh, in our nation of foster care
0: thank you so much okay foster care nation thank you for listening to carrie's story Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me A Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always,
2: you are so super awesome. I thank you go so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks,
0: thanks, thanks. Unparalleled (laughs) Studios.